I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more captivating books of the year is the latest from the acclaimed and best-selling author John Klassen, The Skull, a Tyrolean Folktale, a number one New York Times bestseller when the book was released this past summer. It got great notices and further cemented Mr. Klassen's reputation as an exceptional author and illustrator. Hailed as a masterpiece, The Skull is described as a haunting, charming narrative. It may be for younger readers, but older ones, myself included, found a lot to think about amidst the sharp text and haunting illustrations. I'll ask John, who joins me now, about the first time he came across the folk tale that inspired The Skull and where. I'll ask him about memory, how he works, uh, what he uses when he works, and how the characters in the book interact. Otilla, a child who runs away from home, and this skull that she encounters. I'll also uh, ask John about uh, his career and how his work has been regarded here in Canada, where he was born and raised, and in the United States, where he lives and works now. It was in the New York Times recently uh, that he was described as a national treasure. I'll ask him about that and more. John Klassen is the best-selling author and illustrator of the Hat Trilogy, which has sold over a million copies and which spent uh, 100 weeks on the bestseller list. He is a recipient of the Governor General's Award and the Caldecott Medal. As well, he is a member of the Order of Canada. The Skull is published by Candlewick. Visit uh, linktree slash John Klassen, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash John Klassen for all the links to John's socials and, and books. He joined me from Los Angeles nearly one month ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant on Land program, John Klassen. Mr. Klassen, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. I, I, Otilla, is that how you pronounce her name? I think so. That's how yeah. I've been pronouncing it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so I know that she's a child. And, and uh, as I'm, I'm starting the book, you know, I, I see that she's running away as, as, as children um, do and sometimes threaten to do more often than, than actually do. Um, I, I can't help but think as I, I'm... I'm remembering the book and, and uh, thinking about her, there's a certain wisdom there. And I can't help but think that young readers um, will see themselves in this character or, you know, they see themselves in the characters in the books that they read. Do you um, think about why she's running away or, or um, you know, why she ends up where she does? Yeah, I, I'm very curious about it. Um even, like, it's strange because the original version of the story, there's a few of them. Um, some of them are easier to find than other ones, uh -huh. but they usually start out with her running away um, for pretty run-of-the-mill reasons as far as these kinds of stories go. There's an evil stepmother or there's, you know, some parents, Hansel and Gretel style, who she just isn't fond of anymore, who are trying to get rid of her or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I didn't, for some reason, I didn't want to get into that. I liked the idea of a cold open and meeting her running and that, you know, she wouldn't want to go into it. I, uh, the, the best solution I found was to say that she finally ran away. And that was the important work to do, is that I needed to make sure, or try to make sure anyway, that the audience was on her side. As you say, like, you want to think of her as wise and not overreactive or, or juvenile or, or kind of, you know, running away the way kids often threaten sure. to do over yeah. something small. I, I needed the audience to hopefully um, be on board with this decision right away. And then it, when you don't know why you would run or why she has run away you start to think about why you would have or why she why you think she would have and then the story becomes at least partly about um the reveal of 
not necessarily what happened, but the depth of what happened. Because, you know, her her bravery and her sort of, you know, anger at what's gone on is sort of revealed through the story. And it, it turned into the gasoline of the story for me. As soon as I left that out, it became what drove me through the story. Yeah, there's a lot that sustains her, and, and, and you know, it's it's, it's a, this this combination of, of say, I was going to say street smarts, but the, the, the story doesn't take place anywhere near a street or, or near other no. people. Um, this this wisdom that that I can't help but think that um, that makes her incredibly likable, even though um, some people might not like some of the things she does, right? That's yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what interest. That's what always my favorite characters to read about, and and each stories even now are complex characters who, you know, you don't always understand or maybe even are on board with the way that they handle things, but you um, you can empathize with them and you even admire them. I think that's true. I, I think most of my characters, my approach to picture books, especially with the younger ones, is to have characters that maybe um, we know a little bit more than or that we like the book positions itself that way. This was the first time I had a character that felt to me like something of a hero. Um, and I, I admired her a lot. I liked hanging out with her. And I, I, the more the story went on, the more it's just, you know, she doesn't really have an arc either. She doesn't learn. Yeah. I don't think she learns much in this story. I think we learn about her, but I think she's a pretty straight line throughout the thing. And that's admirable too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, I, when we first meet the skull, I, I and I guess this is the adult in me that that, that um, I, I guess I sense something bad's going to happen when when whenever there's a skull or bones or something like that. <laughs> um, the skull could be viewed in, in in one or two ways throughout the book. I mean, benign, um, kind, um, and then you know, sinister. Uh, on the other hand, um, I. Um, I guess I have to make peace with the fact after I finish the book that, that um, a lot of these preconceived notions I have, whether it's about Otello or about the skull, um, didn't pan out the way that I thought I would. And that made me think about how I read. And and it, is it because I'm an adult that I read the way that I do? Or, or I mean, have I just lost that, that, that ability that a child has to look at these things in, in the way that they do and, and not see the things that perhaps adult me would see? I don't, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on that because some kids ask the same kind of questions when they finish it. And so I'm not sure it's about, you know, childhood naivete or, or something like that. I think that it is. We are dealing with symbols. And I think you're correct that, like, skulls usually mean that something bad has happened. And so you go in there with your, with your shoulders up at least. Mm-hmm. And then there isn't a lot of, you know, as far as information about the skull himself, we see him react to Otilla. And he's very gentle, but he's also helpless. Um, He's just, all he can do is roll around. So it's, it's in his interest to treat her well. Um, and all the evidence we have of the house itself, the one that he presumably lived in when he was a person, mm-hmm. I, I tried to hint at maybe the fact that he was not a great guy. What kind of person has a dungeon with a bottomless pit in their basement, right? <laughs> um, and, and so you, like, I think if you think a little longer on it, you're like, well, yeah, what was this guy's deal? And why is he only ahead now? What what led to that? And like all of this stuff. But I was interested in, and I don't have any further theories on this, but I'm interested in the fact that, you know, she's coming from someplace where the adults weren't great, and she's meeting a person who maybe was not a great adult either. But she's relatively fast to take him at face value. Um, you know, she doesn't, she's not defensive about him. The two of them hit it off almost right away. 
and I like to think that he appreciates that. You know, he's had some time to go over who he might have been in a past life with this, mm. in this house by himself, and maybe he appreciates the, the benefit of the doubt also. I think that's in there. So it was for me when I was writing it. I, I, and so it's, I think that both kids and adults can appreciate that. But I, I, I like what you said about sort of how do we read these things. I think that there's a lot of talk about children's books, and, you know, are they explicitly for teaching kids things? Uh, do they contain morals that the characters themselves can state at the end, or does everyone know what they did, and do kids know how to act after they've read them? If there's anything I'm interested in sort of talking to kids about or in, uh, instructing them on, mm-hmm. it's how do we read? You know, read critically. Read, you know, what do you know at the end of this? What don't you know at the end of this? And what do you presume, and what do we... Um, what do we have to go on? And all of those, you know, they have theories, but they don't mind leaving them as theories. I think that maybe is the difference between kids and adult readers, is that kids are very comfortable with ambiguity and abstraction because all of their days are ambiguous and to a certain extent abstract. They don't, um, they don't have answers for a lot of their questions. They don't even ask them. Whereas adults, if you, left, if you leave things unanswered, they're like, well, you didn't, I've still got questions. The book is over, but yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not completely, I haven't had anything answered. And kids are fine with that. They don't, they don't perceive that as some sort of a threat. But I think adults, we're used to having more information and answers. And so it's fun to see how much you can leave out there on the field without abandoning your audience. And, and th- that goes into to another part of, of um, uh, the book itself, because I, I, I read about uh, how the story came about for you. Um, this idea that folklore changes with each retelling, um, that's something that we lose sight of. And, and, you know, if I tried to recount the story here for people listening to us, um, I, I think uh, we'll, we'll find that the, the details I'll provide change probably. Um, wh- why do you think our brains do that? And, and, I mean, it's fascinating to think about um, just how nostalgia even just, just colors things that, that, that we've encountered and in, in not that long ago even, right? Yeah, and as a, you know, as someone who makes stuff for kids, I'm a little bit suspicious of nostalgia because it, you know, if you're in your in your less strong moments, I think it can be the whole driving force to want to make things for kids because you feel nostalgic for when you were a kid, and no one really cares. You know, your audience doesn't care about what you're nostalgic about particularly. You have to find reasons that they'll be interested themselves, and so you watch out for that. But I am really interested in um, why we change things too because. In the line of work that I'm in, I do go back to books that I remember when I was little, and I've changed them. I find them, and I'm like, I don't remember this, or I remember this being longer, or this being shorter, or this being a whole different color, or whatever it is. You can't believe how your memory has shifted those things. And it brings up the question of whether you've changed actual memories, because you've changed this so much. What else have you changed? And why do we do that? I think that it strikes me as a hopeful thing. It strikes me as something, like, it is a little bit weird that, you know, we might not have an accurate version in our heads of what's happened to us but i think that we're taking care of ourselves when we do that either for you know whether it's whether it's uh, proper or not i think our brains are cushioning something and i think the same thing to do with stories i was shocked when i read the original version of the story again and realized what i'd done to it because why did i do that what was i needing to do why, why was that i think at the bottom i can trust that my interpretation was somehow working on something that i was working on yeah but I don't know what it was doing. I don't think that it's it's to provide answers. I think it's just a clarification, or maybe at best a catharsis, where you get to work something out. I remember reading that about fairy tales in particular, that when kids get attached to fairy tales, you don't really know why, but they certainly do, right? It's almost like it's scratching an itch over and over again. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. why do you want to read Pinocchio over again? You know how this one goes. 
but why are they why are they attaching themselves to a specific story? Every parent has has a story like this, right? Where their kid just wants to read a certain book over and over again, and like they're doing something, it's working on something. And I don't know if that's if we're ever going to get clarity on that, but I don't think that that means it's not a profound thing that's happening. And and how long ago was it that you you first encountered that story? I understand that was at a library, was it that you, you first read it? Yeah, it was really quickly. It was a really interesting, it turns out in retrospect, kind of an interesting experiment, because I read it, I was at a library waiting to do a presentation. It was up in Juneau, Alaska, and um, it was me and a few other people all at once giving a presentation, and so I was just wandering around before my talk, and I had a minute, and so I pulled down a book of, like, kind of goblin ghost tale kind of yeah. things and read it very fast, because I didn't have a lot of time, and it was only a four-page story. And then, you know, it was my turn, so I put it quickly back on the shelf and left. And I didn't have access to it again for a year and a bit almost. And I finally was thinking about it enough where I wrote the librarian about finding it again. I didn't have the title or anything. She had to go digging for it, and she found it. And, you know, I got to reread it. But I still, you know, I thought I had the story in my head. I just wanted confirmation on the details. But it turned out I would changed it a lot. But so much so, and I just had so little access to the story that my, my only version, my old version, the one I changed didn't know I changed was still very clear to me. I remembered it, even though I read the actual version of the story. And how often do you get to do that, right? How often yeah. do you get to contrast the two things so quick, so hard? And I liked mine. And the skull, the original story, wasn't super well known. It wasn't like changing The Little Mermaid or something, where my changes would be conspicuous to an audience um, who knew that story already. And so I felt like I had the latitude to do it. And it was just an interesting. I, my version seemed like it had, you know, wheels. I, I think I, I liked it. It was yeah. worth doing. A couple of things there in response to what you just said. That's a great thing about librarians, isn't it? You ask them something, they can find it. Booksellers are the same way, too, I think. Yeah, I posted about it, and all the librarians in my sort of you know following came out of the woodwork and was like, that's our favorite thing, it turns out. It's like they love that. They love a good treasure hunt. Yeah. 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 Um, this um when you when you look back at the original story and and um and you look at the skull that, that you've written um you know a lot of the reviews talk about um, having read the original and enjoying yours better um that's the thing we do with stories i mean as i said a moment ago if i did recount it um i would imbue my recounting with, with emphasizing things that I like perhaps or, or uh, mm -hmm. even even changing it for, for an audience just to get a laugh even perhaps or something yeah. like that, you know. And and th that's a great thing about being a storyteller is that you're able to do that, that you have the ability to do that or the chance to do that. Well, and those two things are really, are really important too. It's like on the one hand, there's your sensibility as a storyteller and your state of mind right then and what it is you're even going through you know, in your life that would make you emphasize or be interested in certain parts of the story. But then the other side of it is who your intended audience is, who you know you're talking to even. While I was working on it, um, we went camping this was two summers ago, uh -huh. I think maybe last summer or two summers ago, and my son was four, and he brought some friends. It was with a bunch of other friends of his from his school and then the parents. And so we were all had this fire time at the end of the day, and we were trying to figure out what to talk to them about. And one of the parents was like, well, John, you're working on a story. Why don't you tell that story? I was like, well, they're four. Um, but sure, yeah, let's give it a shot. I haven't really got it figured out completely yet, but let's try it. And I know I told them, I don't remember it, but I know I told them a different version. And I sped things up. I waited in other parts and slowed those things down. 
I omitted certain things that maybe I thought was too scary, yeah. up the jokes, like you say, whatever you want to do, but because you have four four-year-olds who are living on marshmallows for four days, you do certain moves. <laughs> and like your perception of that audience, but just, yeah, you're taking care of them. Your, your, your job is to take care of them. And, and, and that's such an interesting thing too, our different views on those audiences, but how you shift it based on who you think is listening. Now, now as, a, as a writer of books, um, as opposed to say, telling uh, stories to audience, uh, audiences in front of you. Um, do you think readers, young readers in particular, are, are right to expect, say, happy endings in, in the stories that they read? I think it depends on your definition of a happy ending. Um, I think that they expect some sense of satisfaction or some sense of something ending, which is different than happiness. I think that um, as long as whatever, as long as you've set something up that feels complete at the end, that can take all sorts of forms, and that's why children's books are so exciting. That, like, I think their definition of that is looser when they're younger too. They, um, I think that adults get more into what's been set up and what they expect, and then when it's not what they've expected based on a hundred other stories they've heard, they have to think about it for a minute at least. And it, I think the first impulse to that is to be dissatisfied before they. Give, them, give it a minute, and they're like, actually, I think I maybe really like that. Um, I think it just has to feel like it ends in a very mm. simple way. It just has to feel like it ends, and that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's happy. Um, I've read something along the lines of, like, that kids enjoy stability at, at the end of a story like that. Um, like, for instance, like, if a story has, if a story's premise is, like, that there's a bunch of wishes being granted, right, you would think that the happiest possible ending to a, uh, a situation like that is that the the person, the main character, is granted like infinite wishes that they get whatever they want forever. But normally, how those stories end is that the whole magic is diffused, that the ability to wish goes away because it's actually really chaotic and it brings a bunch of trouble, whether you think you're getting what you want or not. And so, the happiest ending in that situation is actually just predictability. It's like all of that goes away, and can I please just have a normal day tomorrow? And that's the happiest possible thing and i think that i relied on that for this adaptation too is that there's a few small moves being made so that you don't worry about them after the story is over Mm. um the idea of like them getting them having like the garden room where pears grow or like things like well okay they can eat those and so you have like a little it doesn't satisfy a diet obviously but but like it's just a a box checked where you're like what do they eat like things Mm -hmm. that kids think about things that i think about being like well if they stay there forever and no one ever finds them like are they going to be okay? Um, even, like, she asks him partway through the beginning, like, has anyone ever found this house? And he says, no, you're the first person in a long time. And, like, while she's running away, she goes through a thick bit of trees that she doesn't recognize. And that was done sort of to make the reader assume or at least feel better about the idea that she's going somewhere that she can't be found. She's only one night's run away. And so I didn't want everyone worrying the whole time of, like, you know, some parent or someone from the village or whatever coming to find her. That has to be cut off right away. And so you do these small moves so that it's not the happiest of happy endings. You know, he's still a skull, and she's still got her her things to think about. But they have each other, and they've got this sustainable little place to live that's apparently safe from anything else. And, like, if you can set up that little world that they can just then assume keeps going, that's stability. That's not, that's, you know, that's not chaotic. That's not... It's just hap- It's just fine. You know what tomorrow is going to look like. They're going to go for walks and they're going to eat pears again. And I think that I get into that as an audience, and I have to assume that there's certain kids 
maybe not all kids, but certain kids who are like, yeah, that, that's about the best as I can hope for in this story. Yeah, and then and I'm reading it, and, I, and, and I'm wondering, you know, well, first I wondered why she was running away or from whom, and yeah. uh, th- then now I'm wondering how they're, they're going to survive in this house or what the future will look like. Um, but, but, you know, as I finished the book, I thought, well, you know, maybe I don't have a right to know these things. I don't deserve to know. And, and the, the story ends and, and it's a, it's a great story. Um, let's just leave it at that, you know, and I, and I think I need to read, I need to read like that more, I think. There is a feeling of when I'm making it, and I felt like this with the picture books too, but I think it's only gotten louder in my head that there's just some things that just aren't any of my business as the writer even. <laughs> yeah. There's just, you know, there's things that she doesn't feel like telling me. And even when you're drawing, I mean, it's a different thing than writing and a different discussion, but, like, I avoid showing really, really vulnerable moments in my characters because it just feels like they can have that by themselves. Uh, me putting them on stage for that and showing them at their at their most extreme just feels like that's none of our business. Let them have that moment to themselves. And, like... That approach to writing, too, where it's just like, you can imply that that stuff's gone on, but it's none of our business. Mm. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I don't think that this is the only way to write, but it's the only way I can get anything down, because I don't think I'm very good at writing extremes. I think there are writers and illustrators who, that's their stock and trade, is that they're really good at living in the extreme moments, and that's what the stories are made of. But for me, I'm sort of a, it's a negative space around all that stuff where I like to live. Did you get asked a lot, John, about uh, what comes first, say, the story or the illustration? Uh, you, yeah, I think people are curious when you do these books where it starts. And it, it, the answer is always a little bit murky, because um, I think regardless of if you do start with the writing, um, I usually have a, a very basic atmosphere in mind visually, a place where you kind of want to live and you write to. Um, but as soon as that's established... I don't worry about the drawing as much because I've been drawing for longer than I've been writing, I think. And so I, I, I can usually open the hood on that. If something's wrong with the drawing, I can figure it out and get get it to where I don't hate it. But with the writing, it's very mysterious to me still. I need a whole bunch of weird scaffolding in place before I can begin to write or feel good about it. And so um, it starts, it, it, I think, that if the writing doesn't work, I don't want to make the book. Whereas if the writing works and I haven't figured out how to draw it, I'm pretty sure... I can figure that out. And so the right, it, I usually eat my vegetables first. You do the writing first, and then you then you get to draw it. That's usually how it goes. Yeah, see, I, I read the book like that. I, I, I read the text first, and then yeah. um, I uh, uh, finished it, and then I went back and looked at the illustrations. Oh, that's interesting. Like, you don't, you didn't even really glance over no. a little bit. But, yeah, oh, that's wild. And, and yeah. I, I, it was a different story for me because, I mean, I, I realized that I should have <laughs> I should have read it, you know, the way that you wrote it or the way that it was published um, with the illustration because the mood um, really changed things for me, you know, one way or the other even. Um, you know, where I thought it would be creepy, um, I thought it was lovely. Or where I thought it was weird was was you know I, I felt you know at ease with it. That is the job of the illustrations, to my mind, is that like it's it's tonal. You, um, it's the only way I know on how to because there's things you just can't write. You want the audience to feel a certain way, like you're talking about, where it's like uh, this story is about a little girl who finds like, a skull in a house and they destroy a headless skeleton. But I also want it to feel lovely, like you say, and I don't know how to write that. I don't, because my writing is pretty cold. My narrator, 
this is the first time I've written narration at all. Mm. I usually just write dialogue. Yeah. And I don't know how to be warm with a narrator. It's not a tool I have. And so I have to count on the drawings to do that, or at least try to, so that you feel like you're in a world that's warm, that's affectionate, even though these things are happening. And um, I count on it for that. I don't really, staging and where everyone is in a room or things like that, it doesn't really, that stuff is, isn't really as important as just like, what you're talking about, atmospherics and tone, which is important. It's really valid to me. Um, but I, I'm glad that came across or that it changed it because that's a really interesting experiment to just have read the text first and then go back. Yeah, the, the, the contrasts are there in the illustrations, uh, you know, whether it's light or dark. I, I felt uh, cold and warm. Um, you, you convey cold and warmth uh, um, so well in the illustrations. Um, I'm curious to know what tools you use. I mean, is, is it pencil? Is it ink? It's a bit of everything. Um, there's a lot of both in this. There's a lot of ink uh, for kind of these big blocks of color, but trees are mostly done in graphite, and then character details and skull himself um, are graphite. Usually if it's finer, I like graphite, and if it's broader, bigger shapes, then it's ink. And the two go very well together. They, if you, um, And then I scan all of that in, and then usually the color, like in this book, the color is sort of just big, sort of flat tones of color over top of some texture. And that's done digitally for the most part. Some of it is done with ink. Uh-huh. Um, but for the most part, I, um, my thought with this was both that like there's so much drawing to do because it's a fairly long book for me anyway, it's 115 pages, that I'm going to just take forever making it if everything is going to be done with real tools. But also... Um, I didn't want to exhaust the audience. If you if you do everything with paint, if I had done everything with paint, it would have been so much detail and noise in the pictures that I think it would have gotten a little bit tiresome for a younger reader just to look at everything. And so giving them a break like that, being like, okay, well, there's something, there's some color here, but it's flat, digital color. That sort of gives the eye a break, and there's a visual system set up where you'd be like, okay, well, then this color means nighttime, and this color means warmth, and that kind of thing. And then you can kind of relax into it a little bit, and you're not constantly learning new visual rules you have to keep up with. Yeah. Um, as you were drawing uh, the skull, um, did you think about what the skull looked like in, in when it was alive, say? No, I don't. I think there's a page where it, he has a portrait above the fireplace, mm, right. but, the, but the line cuts him off at the shins, basically, and it doesn't show the top, even though presumably she can see it. Uh, but that's another thing where I was like, I don't, you know, let us let, let the audience fill that one in. I've got some vague idea, but I'm not sure what use it is. Um, I think his size changes a little bit from page to page. I'm not great on consistent details like that. And someone pointed out that it's almost the same size as her head, which is kind of a creepy idea. Um, but it wasn't meant to be. He is supposed to be an adult's head. The one thing about drawing him that keeps coming up is that he doesn't have any mouth. Mm. Um and that was, I tried a mouse, and it just looked way too conspicuous. It looked like he was grinning or about to right, yeah. bite her or something. And so it refers to his mouth in the text. He eats pieces of pear, or at least she feeds them to him, and things like that. But there's no line for that, and that just felt like it neutralized him more. Um, I just like the idea of him going through all of this, but he can't animate. He doesn't change his expression. Even when he's asleep, his eyes don't close or anything. They're just He's just a skull. Um, we're the same age, John, uh, as I was looking this up as uh, preparing for... 81. Interview. Yeah, I was born in 82, but we're, we're, we're right now we're at the same age. Oh, right now we're at the same age. What were the things that you liked reading as a kid? I was behind a little bit, I think. Uh, we would go to the library a lot, but most of my picture book memories anyway were stuff that my dad 
had when he was a kid because his parents, we lived in Toronto uh-huh. growing up anyway, and his parents lived in Niagara, but he was the only boy in a family of five kids, and so he got his own room. And that meant that, like, this is the same setup for me, actually, is that all the books of the house were stored in his room because there was extra room, right? There was shelves. There was room for shelves. Yeah. So he grew up sleeping under just piles of books. And a lot of the, I think back then in the 60s and the 50s, there was these book clubs where you would get, like, you know, Dr. Zeus or P.D. Eastman books delivered in this, like, monthly thing, and they were a lot cheaper than they than the picture books are now. And so yeah. they didn't have a lot of money, but they had piles of these books because they had six kids to entertain, or five kids to entertain. And, um, uh, and so we would go there, and I would pull the books off the shelf, but they were all from the 50s and the 60s. And then he would give me his Hardy Boys books later on, and I just felt like I, book-wise, grew up, like, 20, 30 years before I was, I was living in the world, and so those were the ones I liked a lot. And if we went to the library, I would, I would actually, this one feels like something I would have pulled down. For the first time, like my picture books, I never know whether I would have liked these or not. Just, like I, I hope so. But I think that even just superficially, I would have yeah. pulled this one off the shelf because it's called the skull. There's a little girl holding a skull on the cover. I would have been down for this one. Yeah. How about you? What would you? What would you? Um, I'm trying to think now what what it was. I, I read a lot of nonfiction, which I think spoiled me for for reading fiction later on. Oh, that's interesting. Because I find yeah. reading novels now just a chore. Um, <laughs> I read more nonfiction now than fiction. Certainly, really? yeah. yeah. But back then, I I wasn't a nonfiction kid. Yeah, I read. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I read almanacs and the sort, you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. and 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 found those fascinating and engaging. Um, but um, like nonfiction today, it, it's easy to get through. But but fiction and and, and poetry, um, I find very difficult, and I spend a lot of time reading it, more time than I it's should. It's scary, I right? It's scary to like figure, you know, to dip your head into someone else's head. Yeah. Feel like, yeah. Um. What, um. This gift that you have for storytelling, did, did you have this even at a younger age, say? I like storytelling. I, I remember there's an anecdote I like where in, in grade three uh, we started, they gave out journals, and we the job, I think, was to sort of write down your day, right? Keep mm-hmm. it like a diary. What did you do at recess? What did you have for lunch? That kind of thing. And almost immediately, I just started writing stories in it instead, and actually drawing pictures. And that's one of the first times I can remember drawing pictures is because it was a ghost story, but I wanted to... There was something complicated that was happening just action-wise. They were in a cave, and someone was hiding behind a rock or something, and I was like, I don't know what to write. I'm not, I don't know how to say where everyone is, but I can draw it. And so that helped, and that's still my approach now. It's like what we were talking about. It's like it, the pictures have to have a job. Um, but I always loved reading stories, and especially, like as I say, like kind of ghost stories and things like that, things that were really dramatic and had an atmospheric way about them. Um, I don't remember. I could draw. I was a kid mm-hmm. in class who could draw. But writing, I liked writing better. But I, I don't know if I felt gifted at it um, almost ever. It was always my friend Mac, who writes some of the books I illustrate, has this line that he heard somewhere where he, he repeats it a lot because it's a good one. And it says, like, writers are people for whom writing is especially difficult. And I... I buy that. That's mm. that's right. And so I think that because it was always so hard for me, I always kind of overthought it, or it just felt like I was doing more work than everybody else. That I was actually worse at it. It felt like I wasn't as fast, or I was. I had to think about so much before I would start, and I never felt natural at it. And I still don't feel natural at it. But I think that um, I've found writers since then who I like very much who are the same way. And so it's encouraging that we have the same approach. But um, yeah, I don't feel like you meet 
gifted storytellers in this job. You meet these guys. Mac is one of them. But these people who can sort of sit a group of children down and just ad lib and just launch into something and set it up and just get them to just listen for hours. And I've never felt like that. I need, I need a real setup. I like telling stories very much, but I'm not one of these people who can um, sit down and naturally do it. I need a lot of planning before I do it. But in that way, I like it. That, then I like it. <laughs> yeah, you're making me remember all the the, uh, the storytellers that come to class in, in elementary school. Um, yeah. Even teachers who would be just um, you know captivating yeah. as they read to us and and. Yeah, um, I've never had that gift. I've never felt like I wanted it. Even it's been surprising being in children's books because they send you out as that person fairly yeah. often. You know, you go to schools because you've done children's books, and they're like, "Okay, be the guy." And I've got my version of that guy, but it took a minute to find him. And it's also just not the same guy as other people <laughs> where you have that gift you're talking about. It's not the same. Like you don't get into, I don't see often people who get into writing and illustrating because they are especially uh, socially gifted, right? You know, like yeah. one of those things you do is a solitary thing because you don't necessarily have the gift of, of talking to people a lot. And so all of a sudden you're this introvert who has a job being an introvert, and then they throw you out into a gymnasium of 800 kids. And you're like, all right, you're the man for an hour. Go for it. And you're like, right, right, I'm supposed to be able to do this. And, yeah, it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, because you're, you're going to be, uh, you are, pardon me, one of these, these, these authors that, that um, young readers read, do you feel the responsibility um, uh, um, as you work about... Um, the audience that'll read your book. I mean, you, you will be the first reader that, that a lot of people will read, and and, and as such, a, a writer that um, these readers will remember forever. I mean, there are books that I remember reading, uh, you know, in, in school that I remember to this day, where I was or, or how I felt or, or the characters themselves. Um, does that weigh on you as you work? Say, yeah, it can shut you down for a long time. I think that. Uh, it's maybe the hardest thing, and especially at the beginning, because um, when you're starting out in children's books, you probably were attracted to that because you do have those feelings you're talking about, especially strongly. You have good, or at least strong memories of those books and that time in your life and all the associations and all of that, and here you are contributing or trying to contribute to it. And who the heck are you, right? That's It can stop you up in a big way. I think that the only... When I do get asked about advice to people who are starting on this, it's to counter that specifically because it will it will freeze you up. And what you found, or what I've found anyway, is that when I go back to the books you're talking about, when I have the books that I remember that really stuck with me or that just I remember very well, when I go back to them, any sort of... Uh, if I try to relate to the author or the illustrator who was working on those ones, it's usually that they they seem to be feeling especially loose. They aren't trying to make the greatest book of all time. They're not making this monumental, giant thing that holds the whole universe. The ones I remember liking the best are actually really loose, and they think they feel like they were made in the space of a few weeks, and they're not trying to do this massive thing. They're just having fun, and that's what kids respond to the most, is that your main job is to keep yourself interested, and like as an adult even. And you know you hope that you're making it clear and concise and simple enough that a young kid can get it. But you're really trying to interest yourself as a storyteller and designer and an illustrator and all those things. Um, you have to let go of what you're talking about before I can get started. I don't know how anyone does it with both things at the same time, where they're, they're able to hold that feeling in their head and still get anything done. Because you're right, like it'll even the permanence of the pictures themselves. You're talking about having read it and not looked at the pictures. 
I'm well aware that kids do the reverse because they're pre they're not yeah. reading yet. And so if they're being read this book, they're staring at the pictures and they're memorizing every little thing and the smallest detail that might counter what you're trying to do, they'll they'll obsess with it and they'll pick it out and they'll remember it and they'll be like, Well, why is he why is that doorway like that? Or why does the tree do that over there? And they'll just but you have to at a certain point you have to let go of all that because it's like you can't get any work done. You'll just you'll just freeze up, and it happens. I think it happens to all of us who do this stuff. Is that we do freeze up a lot because it's a constant negotiation with that feeling. It doesn't get any better. <laughs> well, what do you tell a young person who may come up to you and say that the kind of work you're doing is what they want to do when they grow up? Do you have any advice for them, sir? I. It's, it's hard to have advice because you never know where they're at or how they're feeling about right, it. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, and it's not. It's not that I was ever told that what I was doing didn't matter um, or anything, but for some reason my impulse is to tell them that it does, that what they're doing, because I remember, as I say, I remember the stories I was writing in third grade, grade three and like up to, and past that. What they're working on right now, and I'm still working on ghost stories, weirdly enough, like that same, I'm still kind of trying to go back to that feeling, how it felt to just tell myself a story in grade three in the middle of class like that you were i was high on it i remember just getting so excited by my story and you're still trying to get back to that and so you try to tell them that what they're doing right now is real writing and real drawing so that they're not like there's no bar there's nobody who kind of says well now you're you're really doing it congratulations you made it um to validate that work somehow to be like you're doing it now like what you're working on now is you and it's working and it's like important and you'll remember it by the way when you're 40 years old you do. And I don't know why, I'm not sure what that does for them. I'm not sure what I'm aiming to get when I tell them that. Um, but for some reason, it seems to help. Is that like, you know, there's no, I don't want to think they're faking it or that yeah. it's not real or something. Um, yeah, but that's the best I got with kids who like reading and writing. And, you know, you can tell them just to keep reading and, yeah. read and looking at everything. But they're doing, they're doing that anyway because they just love this stuff most of the time. And it, 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 you realize how that matters, you know, and and, and it should matter uh, when yeah. when you, you tell people, you know, what they need to hear. Um, the, the review of the book in the New York Times described you as a national treasure. Um, <laughs> do you feel that both in Canada and in the United States? I, I I got a lot of flack over that because people who do know me know that I'm not I'm not a citizen down here. I'm still just a green card guy, uh-huh. and so a national treasure is is maybe a, a technical error on the part of the very kind national or New York Times reviewer. Um, uh, I, I, I haven't lived in Canada since I started doing books, but I remember it's been one of those preoccupations of mine that I get to know the, the Canadian book landscape as well as the American one. Um, they tour you a lot in the States, or mm-hmm. at least they've toured me a lot in the States. And so you get to know how the books are received and what the challenges are and where the better, t- all that stuff. And, um, it's been anything that happens in Canada is like outsized in my heart about the reaction, right? Like you can get a nice New York Times review and it's all very good. But if I get an equally nice review from like a local paper somewhere in northern Ontario, I just lose my mind. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and a lot of my books, I think this one in particular is, is, has whiffs of homesickness to it. I was thinking about Ontario when I was drawing these pictures mm. and living in, in the book and stuff. And so you get it out that way. Um, but any sort of any good reaction or any sort of accolade that comes across from Canada means about a hundred times as much as as someplace like I've I've been here since 2005, uh-huh. and I'm still it's still not home. Canada's home, and so um, you and that's where it started. You know that's where you're going back to is when you were a kid. What are you thinking about? What are you liking? What are you responding to? 
that's all up there. And so, yeah, it means especially a lot when you do get a, a good reaction. There's a bookstore in Winnipeg, uh, McNally Robinson, yeah. um, that publishes their top books of the week and everything. And I was watching that list closer than the New York Times list, I think. I'm just like, what's Winnipeg <laughs> doing? How's Winnipeg feeling about it? And like, you just, because it, it means more. You get those guys, right? You understand. There's so much that's completely impenetrable down here. It's just, you're never going to understand the American mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you, you can understand the Canadian one to a certain extent. And so it, when, when they like it, it means especially a lot. It doesn't get as cold as it does in the skull in L.A., I bet. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a rainy winter, but no, it was, a nice, um, it was nice to draw snow and footprints and stuff like that for sure and for the skull, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, how, so th- this is obviously your job, John. Um, uh, do, do you have um, more than one project going at the same time, or, or, or do, you, do you manage to keep yourself to one book at a time? Um, no, there's usually more than one happening at a time, even just in your head, but often practically as well. Um, it's just sort of the, the, the economics of it and just, just the practicalities, too. Books are on something of a schedule, but um, especially at the writing stage, they often take longer than I'd like them to, just because, I, as I say, I'm kind of a nervous writer, and so I'll think I'll be starting on something, and then it'll take months before it's in shape and ready to illustrate uh, and so I, when I was doing this one, I was bouncing back and forth between a couple of things. And then um, Mac Barnett and I had a television show come out this year that we were pretty heavily involved with at the same time. And so the best case scenario is that you get whole days for a certain project so that mm-hmm. you're not you know, spending the morning on one book and then shifting gears into a TV show in the afternoon because that divides your attention too much. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of toggling back and forth. and. It's always kind of gratifying when the project comes out, like the skull comes out, and you flip through the pages, and you're like, okay, it holds. It doesn't look like I was all over the place that year. <laughs> yeah. Like it looks. That's another reason for all the restriction, though, too, is that in the palette and in the drawing and everything else, is you're like, I'm going to be in different moods for a year on this. So if I have to set hard rules, that'll benefit you know, the cohesiveness of the thing when it comes out, because otherwise it's going to look like a garage sale. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed speaking with you today, John. It's such a special story, The Skull, and, and, and a, a beautiful book. Um, congrats, continued uh, good luck with it. Congratulations. I appreciate your time today. I, I appreciate the questions. This was a wonderful talk. Thanks so much for your time. The book is called The Skull, a Tyrolean Folk Tale. It's published by Candlewick. It's uh, author and illustrator John Klassen. Join me on the line from Los Angeles in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.